How's everybody doing? I just got back from uh, three days of paddling the Delaware River with some of my favorite people in the world. And while my flesh is weak, my spirit is restored. We had a really good time. The, um, well, I'll share it with you at some point here in a few minutes. But we're to a really fun part of David's life and David's journey. This is the part, you know how in every story there's, um, there are these epic low moments and then there's a, a high moment. What do we call the high moments? I was a literature major and it just went blank on it. The climax of the story, right? This is the part we've been waiting for. This is when the hero finally overcomes and he gets his reward and, and then everything gets settled and life is good. And before that, the hero reached some dark place where it looked like, man, is he even going to survive this thing? We are now at the climax of David's life. Because after all these years of first being anointed and then having victories and then retreating and then all kinds of things happening to him after 10 years or more of wandering in the wilderness, being hunted like a fugitive, and then finally getting anointed king. Then he had seven years of war with the ones who wanted the old demonic king back on the throne somehow. And, and finally now he's king and he's taken Jerusalem back, which was always made to be the place where God's presence would dwell, where he would make his name dwell. And soon there's going to be a, a place in the world that's going to be consecrated for the Prince of Peace to come and set up his throne centuries later. And we're to that part of the story. So David right now is absolutely euphoric. His enemies have been driven out of the land. He now occupies this place. He's been anointed. Everybody loves him. All He survived, not only survived the wilderness, but thrived in the wilderness. He's king. Everybody loves him. Everybody adores him. And it can only get better from here. And it's in moments like this, I was talking with Lisa before service today about how throughout history, and this includes American history, there are these moments where it seems like God gives us the land, he gives us victory, he gives us peace. And then we don't know what to do with it. We, we get this, you know, amazing place. The enemy has been defeated. I can finally live my life. I can be at peace. I can be free. I can do what I feel like I was made to do. And then what we're terrible at is maintaining it from generation to generation. And I was sharing about how I've read the Bible through so many times and I can't really find a place other than Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob where it was done well. And they didn't even have a place to live. They lived in tents, meandering around the promised land. But but we've got to become a generation. We've got to learn how to be a people who know how to be a good steward of what God gives to us. We have to learn how to possess the land when God gives it to us and how to hold on to it. And we've got to become children who take from our parents, our fathers, if you will, the generation that came before us, gratitude for the ground they conquered a learning of, okay, I'm not going to do those things that you did that were wrong and off, but I'm not going to dishonor you by severing everything you did and throwing it down the toilet. I'm going to honor what you did and build on it from here. Imagine what we would be like if we would take every awakening and every revival and the next generation just gets better at it and better at it and better at it. Instead of this generation sacrificed, paid a price, God poured out his spirit and then the next generation said, hey, look, we're living in prosperity. Let's go party and lose it all. And that's just over and over again. It happens in the natural. It happens when, you know, this family becomes millionaire level and they have everything. And it's so hard for their children to appreciate the sacrifice that's been made to get to that place. And so they just squander it all and, and lose it like the prodigal son did. And so 
that this is an exhortation, this part in David's life, this part of our learning how to live as those who have God's heart, who are after God's own heart, but also already have God's heart. How many of you have God's heart? I know you're all raising your hands on the inside because you don't want me to preach and start over again. That we do, we have Christ in us. If you made your confession and said, God, you're my Lord, you're my God, I want to be baptized into Christ, we have the heart of God. We don't, need, we don't even need somebody to teach us about God, really. When we get into what's true on the inside, what's already been written on our new heart, we already know what God's like. It's just that sometimes we prefer the old ways of thinking and the old ways of living to this new way that God's given us. David did it right. David's priority, now that he has peace, he's occupying the city of peace, he had his priorities straight. Do you know what the first thing was that he did once he was established as king? He was anointed king, but how many of you know being anointed for something doesn't make it established yet? Being anointed for something speaks of potential. You have the power, you have the capacity to do something. But established means you've done the work to do the thing that you were anointed for. So now David's on that side and his priority. First things first, I've got to have the presence of God ensconced in this place. I am not going to serve a day as your king. I will not pretend to rule and lead God's people unless God's right here with me. So where's the ark? Because it was the old covenant day, the ark of God. I don't want to do a whole teaching on the tabernacle, but the tabernacle was a tent that was a mobile worship center. It traveled with the people of God everywhere in the wilderness. And then they had it set up in various places in the promised land. Because as of now in David's life, there's no permanent place for God's tabernacle. So they had it set up in various places. They didn't know where to set it up. And so they moved it around. But the ark had been missing. The ark represented the heart of the tabernacle. It's where God's presence was. And what happened was God's people started treating the ark like pagans treat their gods, like it was an idol. Hey, all we got to do is carry this thing into battle and God will do all the work. And they just thought it was like some magic charm or something like that. And so God got a little frustrated with that because they were worshiping pagan gods, carrying the ark, thinking, well, God's always going to be for us. And God said, all right, I'm going to let the Philistines win this one. And the ark went into Philistine territory. That didn't go well for them either. It got captured. This is when David was not even born yet when all this was going on. And um, it got captured. <laughs> they went to one city and everybody got these painful boils like tumors on their private parts. So they blessed the neighboring Philistine city with the ark and said, hey, we got this really cool thing. They go, we got this really cool thing made of gold. You're going to love it. You take it. Five Philistine cities later, they said, we got to get rid of this thing. Everybody's getting cancer everywhere it goes. So they put it on a cart with a couple of um, cows that had just given birth. And this, I don't want to preach it. This is a whole other message in itself. The diviners said, put it on a cart with cows, separate them from their calves. And God, the God who owns this thing will take it where he wants it to go. And so it worked. They went low, the whole way back to the edge of Israel. And it stayed in, in a house where it remained for an entire generation. It stayed in, in, a, in a house that was just, they said, look, you take care of it. Imagine being in that house. Like, wait, what is this thing? That's that thing you heard about in the news. Everybody gets cancer whenever it's there. What are you doing putting it in my house? What did I do wrong? <laughs> you know, what do we do with this thing? But the amazing thing about this story is you had Samuel the prophet, and then you had Saul the first king of Israel. 
Neither of them said, hey, this ark belongs in the tabernacle. It's the whole point of our worship. If the presence of God is not there, when we're going through all the ritual of sacrifice and all of what our God has said, this is what pleases him. If the presence is in the middle of it, it's not in the middle of it, then what are we all about? I I know many of you, and I'm included in this group, we're part of a, a church like Hillside because all of us have several things in common, one of them being a a disdain for empty ritualistic worship. Man, not a single amen. Amen. That's a good point. Yeah, I agree. That's why I'm here too. I grew up in one of those churches. I mean, we had rituals. We had like the communion was broken and then it was consecrated because they believe in transubstantiation, which means that bread is physically now the body of Christ. So they put it in a box up on the altar from week to week and had a a lock and key on it even that the priest kept on him because you can't eat it without the priest's help and and a consecrated wine and all these rituals. And like every time you walk down the, the center aisle of the church, you had to stop and genuflect and to make the sign of the cross. You couldn't even cross in front of it without making the signs and symbols like that. And that is what dead religion's like. And so one thing we have in common is this desire to have the real thing. A desire to say, look, I don't want to go through motions anymore. I don't want to, you know, pretend. I don't want to make my heart do something or make my body do something that I don't know is true on the inside. Now, for some, I don't want to, you know, totally bash. For some, those rituals have meaning. For some, those things are meaning. There are very few. So few I've never met one. That, I mean, have a heartfelt meaning. For many, it's just, this is our tradition, and we do it because this one told us to do it this way. I want to tell you that God is not eager to instill religious traditions. He is eager to be with his people. He is eager to find a way to live in the midst of his people. And so the ark's in this house, whole generations gone by now we have a king on the throne who's not after building his own kingdom he's a man after God's own heart he said we're going to get that ark where is it they found it they brought it and here's the story second Samuel chapter 6 now David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel 30,000 of them and David arose and went with all the people who were with him to Baal Judah to bring Up from there, the ark of God, which is called by the name, the very name of the Lord of hosts, enthroned above the cherubim. They placed the ark of God on a new cart that they might bring it from the house of Abinadah, which was up on the hill, and Uzzah and Ahio, not Ohio, Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, so that was the priest, these are offsprings of the priest, who were leading the new cart. So they brought it up, uh, they brought it with the ark of God from the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill in Ohio, walking ahead of the ark. And meanwhile, David in the house was celebrating before the Lord with all kinds of instruments made of wood and lyres, harps, tambourines, castanets, and cymbals. But then they came to the threshing floor of Nikon, and Uzziah reached out toward the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen nearly upset it. So you get the picture, it's on a cart, an ox cart. Just like how the pagans said, this is how you transport the ark. I'm going to move the ark this way. And it started to tip. Maybe they hit a pothole in the road. And it was uh, put his hand up to stabilize the ark. And what happened next um, was that the anger of the Lord burned against Uzzah. And God struck him down there for his reverence. Or for his irreverence, rather. And he died there by the ark of God. David became very angry because of the Lord's outburst against Uzzah. 
And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day, where the Lord broke out against Uzzah is the meaning of that name. And so David, for the first time in his life, David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Now, that question could be taken one of two ways. It could be taken as a hopeless, despairing question. How can I ever have the ark if that's what's going to happen? If somebody touches it, they're going to be struck dead. dead. David maybe was ignorant at this point of how the ark was supposed to be handled. Or it could be viewed as a question of, I've got to find a way to get that ark to me. How can that ark come to me? I've got to inquire of the Lord. I've got to find out what is it going to take that I can have the manifest presence of God here with me before I seek to be king of Israel. Have you ever asked that question of yourself? How can I be sure that I'm going to have the presence of God with me all the time? That is the most important question of life. How can I make sure that I'm living in such a way? How can I make sure that my heart is postured in such a way? How can, what, can, what do I need to do to make sure that the presence of God, the ark of God in the Old Covenant can be right here with me? So what happened? What's up with Uzzah? With this thing, it seems like just coming out of nowhere, their heart's good. They, they've made this cart probably with good intentions. It's the safest way to transport it. They're carrying it along. Moses steps out to stabilize it so it doesn't spill over on the ground, and God strikes him dead. We got to talk about what irreverence is here and what it isn't. Because this is one of those scriptures we could easily just dismiss it and say, well, that's old covenant. It's not like that anymore. But we've seen already with David that he was an old covenant king doing a new covenant thing. That David came to understand some things about God and lived in such a way. It was as though David was on the other side of the cross from where he lived in history. He lived with such intimacy with God. He lived with such a knowing of the ins and outs of how God was. It was as if he'd already known Jesus. And some of his psalms and prophetic declarations, it's like he saw his son, his descendant rather, on the cross. And so we can't just dismiss it. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So let's talk about reverence, what it means and what it doesn't mean. Because this is a really important question, especially for us. This is where we find the balance in the scriptures, where new covenant life is not just a free-for-all, do whatever you want. It is intensely free. It is so free, it's scary. It's so free that we are now more responsible for how we relate with God than we've ever been before. And yet at the same time, God's the same as he was the day that he broke out and Uzzah died just for touching the ark of his presence. So the sin of irreverence is taking God's presence for granted and treating it as if it's something common. That's the simplest way I could define irreverent behavior. It means that we know better we know that God's holy. We know that God's amazing. We know that God is the creator of heaven and earth and everything that lives in it. We know that God is this majestic, awesome. We know that God's a consuming fire. We know all of those things. And then nothing changes about how we live our life or how we treat him. One of the most uh, intensely wrong things that we could do is come to believe in God and have no change as a result of that. We go on living as if we didn't know who God was. We go on interacting with God as if we don't understand or realize this isn't like my buddy who lives next door. This is the Lord of heaven and earth. Yes, he calls me his friend, but it's not like being friends with a peer. 
It's like being friends with the most powerful being that, that, that could be the source of all authority, the source of all power. And he has a certain way that he likes relating as a friend. How many of you have a friend? Well, one of the things when you have a friend is, let me find out what your likes are and what your dislikes are. I want you to be my friend. I want you to stay my friend. So I'm going to endeavor to treat you the way that you like to be treated. That's what friends do, right? So if we relate with God as friends, our first question ought not to be, hey, what are you going to do for me today? You know, relating with God with a what have you done for me lately kind of disposition is a formula for disaster. But our posture toward God ought to be, okay, you're my, you call me friend? Wow, I never had a friend like you. So I just got that song in my head. Oh, get it out. Jesus, help me. Never had a friend like you before. So what is it that you like? And once we come to know that, I'm not going to treat you as if you're just some common thing. You're not a pagan God that I made up. I've come now to connect with the God of the universe. And that is intense. And so this guy, the priest, Uzzah was a priest. He knew, he knew the Bible. He was supposed to study the law of Moses. He knew how to handle the presence of God. If he would have been faithful, he would have known, you carry the ark of God a certain way and you don't do certain things with it. He could look back in his own genealogy to the first family of priests. Aaron, the high priest, had four sons. The first two died because they went before the presence of God deciding, I'm not going to mix up the incense and offer it the way that God said to. I got a new idea. I'm going to do it a different way. So they mixed it up. And the, the way the Bible says, they brought strange fire before the Lord's presence. And they were struck dead. So Uzzah ought to have known better. He ought to, and his brother ought to, and whatever other priests were around ought to have known. Look, guys, we don't put the ark on a cart that is, not the, that is not what this was made for. This, this box right here is not just a box like an idol lives in. This is a symbol of, and a place where God's presence dwells. It's made to be carried on the shoulders of the priests. We shouldn't be putting it on an ox cart and treating it like it's some spoil from conquering an enemy. This is the presence of God, and, and he knows how it wants to be handled. So Uzzah's sin or his mistake of irreverence wasn't misbehaving a certain way. It was treating that ark as though it was just any old golden box. And he died for it. David inquired of the Lord, and he said, God, I need this box. I, I know that that represents your presence, that that's where you told us by commandment, I'm going to make my presence dwell. And that's where your mercy seat is. Lord knows I'm going to need that. And I, I need it. So God, how do I do it? And he sought the Lord and he sought the scriptures and he came. The man after God's own heart said, okay, there's a certain way that you want it done. I'm in. I'll do it however you need it done, however you want it done. Forgive me for this transgression. Don't let us make that mistake again. But I'm going to have your presence. I, will not, I couldn't have done it in the wilderness without you. I'm definitely not going to be able to do it on the throne without you. So God, show me how to do this thing. So God, he learned, God can only be approached with extreme reverence. Reverence didn't go out the window when freedom came in. It's just that now we don't need some external source to tell us how to be reverent. From the heart now we know what reverence looks like. From the heart we know what, God, what pleases God and what God's like and, and, and what, how we ought to approach him. Not through some external rituals. Reverence without heart is pretentious dead religion. 
So we could go through the motions. We could do all the things. You know, again, I grew up, there was a whole liturgy leading up to the moment of the Holy Eucharist, which was when the elements would be sanctified. And it was the highlight of the service. This is the moment where we're going to break bread with Jesus. We're going to do as he commanded. As often as you do this, do it in remembrance of me. Every week, but it became this pretentious dead religion because I could go and take those elements having slept with my girlfriend the night before and been drunk. Treating the cross of Christ, treating the presence of God as a common thing. That's what dead religion offers the opportunity for. Because you could go to church on Sunday. We prayed a prayer of confession. The priest absolved us of all of our sins. Now we could go right back to sin Monday morning. Come back on Sunday and hit the reset button all over again. It's pretentious. It's not worshiping in spirit and in truth. It's a dangerous thing to relate with God that way. I mean, Paul said it, and this is new covenant this happened, when the presence of God's near, it is not a light thing. It's not just a, hey, now we could go back and, and live as though he's not here. A, a dude and his wife died because they lied about their offering in the New Testament church. It's this amazing moment, uh, uh, the book of Acts, all exciting, multitudes are coming to the faith, people getting baptized, apostles getting set free from prison after they got beat a little bit, but they're getting set free, and then they lied about their offering, and boom, they died on the spot. And it says, great fear came upon the church. And it was a wake-up call and a reminder that God's presence is still God's presence. He is a consuming fire. We can think of it this way. If you get near a fire, and you're made of flammable material, you're gonna get burnt. God doesn't change. He is a consuming fire. It's, it's not just a metaphor, he is that way, but if we wanna get near to the presence of that fire, you know, we had campfires while we were camping along the river, and I had to stay back away from it because it was too hot. You don't touch fire with your bare hand, but if we've been made into something new, how many of you have been born again? of incorruptible seed. How many of you are now in Christ and so you're a new creation? Old things have passed away, old things have become new. Well, guess what? You can step into the fire and not get burnt now. But it's because something has happened that changed us completely. But to stay one way, the way we used to be, and then try to approach the fire, that's dead religious pretension. And that's dangerous. And that's what happened to Uzzah on that day. But David... David, the man after God's own heart. You know, that could have been a tragic end to the presence of God in the midst, but a man after God's own heart said, okay, I need to understand your way. I tried to do it my way. I had the right heart, wrong way. Show me how it's done. So it says in verse 10 then that David was unwilling to move the ark of the Lord into the city of David with him, but David took it aside to the house of Obedidim, the Gittite. Now the Gittites were residents of the city of Gath. You remember Gath, where Goliath was from, who came with David into the promised land. They lived right on the border of the promised land. But imagine Obed-Edom. David's like, hey, this Oza the priest, he just died from touching this box right here, so we're going to put it in your house. <laughs> Come on, just, just put yourself in Obed-Edom's shoes for a minute. There's this golden box, it's gorgeous, it's heavy, and there it is in the middle of the room. David said, hey, just don't touch it. And then they all go, they all go back to Jerusalem, and you're left, and there's you with your family. Like, <laughs> <laughs> okay, kids, 
Don't play with it. And, and you know, you're like, what are we going to do with this thing? How many of you actually, I don't know what your testimonies all, I think I know most all your testimonies, but I don't know them all yet. But how many of you had this? I had this experience when I came to God and I came to like experience his presence. You know what I mean? Like not just believe, which the demons also do, but experience his presence in this way that it felt like fire in my chest. It felt like I was dizzy. I mean, all these things kept happening as God was just baptizing me in the spirit and coming on me again. And I had this sense of, wow, God really is actually supernatural. (laughs) I know that's very kindergarten level revelation, but, but that's not, I mean, we live sometimes and we think of God as though he's not supernatural. Because we, we tend, all right, so he's Jesus, and he's a man, and you know, I can relate with him like a brother, you know, like a buddy from out of town. But he's still very supernatural. And I had this sense of awe and wonder when I was new in Christ. I had this sense of God really is just so much bigger than I ever imagined. And I was a little bit afraid then. Because, you know, I was, I was still, I, got, I still do, had sin. I was still in some traps of things. I, I still got drunk a few times after I got saved. That's to set some of you free, I shared that. I'm not endorsing drunkenness, but I'm saying that you didn't get unsaved when you messed up again. You didn't get unsunned after you were adopted because you blew it. Don't believe a lie that says you're unsunned now and then leave home, because that's dangerous. But to stay in the house, this is what David, right? The priority thing, we'll see this more in the future with David. The difference between David and everybody else was he sinned, he blew it, he ran right to God. His whole life, every time things fell apart, instead of running away from God, he ran toward God. That's the basic difference between someone who's in Christ and someone who isn't yet. We either run away from God when we fail, when things go bad, or we run toward God when we fail and things go bad. Let's be people who run toward God like David. So there's Obedidim, and he's terrified of this thing. But after a while, he's realizing, hey, you know, we're not dying. And we're not getting boils in painful places on our body like what happened 40 years ago in Gath from what we heard. So maybe, uh, maybe it's not so bad after all. Then he starts noticing that his crops are growing better than they ever have before. That his kids are listening to him all the time. His two-year-old saying, yes, daddy when he tells him to do the dishes. Suddenly he's feeling joyful. Suddenly there's peace in his house. Suddenly his neighbors are going, hey, what happened to you? It's like you can't stop smiling all the time and your wife and your kids, like your whole house, you're just so blessed all of a sudden. And he starts putting two and two together. So you know when that started happening is when they dropped that box off here. And all of a sudden, everything started coming up roses. Well, word got back to the palace. Word got back to the palace. It says, then, then the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obedidim for three months. And the Lord blessed Obedidim and all his household because he had the presence. He didn't, we don't know what he understood about it. He came because of David. Maybe he heard some of David's songs. Maybe he came to already worship the God of Israel. We don't really know much about Obedidim except that once that presence got in his house, everything was blessed. The presence of God has always been made for households. Always been made for households. A house that desires it and a house that honors it is postured for God's blessing. This living room worship that we do, that that really God really birthed it through Stephanie. She really had a heart for it and fanned the flames of it. Living room worship, having God in the house 
is the primary place where his presence has always been made. We'll see next week when we look at how David had a desire to build a temple for God, what God's answer was to him. And his basic answer was, look, David, I'm not into fancy. I mean, honestly, what do you think you could build for me that's more beautiful than heaven? What do you think you can offer me that's better than the place where I actually dwell? What I really want is an invitation to be in your house. What I really want is that you desire my presence inside the four walls. That you don't just do it outside, that you don't just do it when you're pretending, you don't just do it through religious ritual when you're with everybody, but you actually want me and will honor me in your house. Always been his desire. So how do you, question for you to ponder this week, what do you do to intentionally host God's presence in your household? That's, that's the question all of us need to answer. I'll set you free with something. I've been a pastor for 23 years. I've been in Christ since 1989. And we still have ebbs and flows in our family. They're, the warfare over having God in your house will be the most intense warfare you've ever faced. The devil hates it when the ark is found in a house. Because once it's found in a house, God's blessing flows from that place. What do we do to be intentional about hosting God's presence? And I'm not going to give you three steps to it. You know why? Because you already know. You already know. You have Christ in you. You have an anointing from the Holy One. And you already know. You don't need somebody to teach you about the Lord. Your heart already knows. So, David, it says in the Chronicles, I'm going to jump back and forth. We're now to where the first Chronicles starts telling more of David's story. So it says that David uh, built houses for himself in the city of David and prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. I'll get back to that. He pitched a tent for it. Then David said, hey, no one's to carry the ark of God but the Levites. I've been reading the Bible and Oza died because we weren't supposed to do it that way. My bad. Now I know how to do it. For the Lord chose them to carry the ark of God and to minister to him forever. Now here's old covenant, new covenant change. In the old covenant, there was one tribe out of the 12 tribes of Israel, 13 if you had Joseph's two sons in the mix. Only one tribe was allowed to touch and deal with anything to do with God's presence in the tabernacle. How many here today are priests by, by trade, by profession? Yeah, you are. You don't get paid for it. None of us gets paid to be a priest, but we all are. Simply put, a priest has access to the presence of God on behalf of those who do not. Anybody here not have access to the presence of God? You guys okay today? Is it too warm? Move, make some motion. Nod your head. Even nod your head like, like the um, Indians do. They go like this to say yes. I thought they were mad at me and they kept going like this. That was yes, amen. So do that. Shake yourself up a little bit. We're all priests. So we are all appointed by God to carry his presence. No rituals required. No external anything. We are authorized to carry the presence of God. In fact, we must carry the presence of God. 
if we don't carry the presence of God, then what on earth are we doing? Only things that could be done on earth is what we're doing. So David assembled all Israel in Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place, which he had prepared for it. So let me get this straight, David. Somebody died because he touched the ark in a way he wasn't supposed to touch it because he disobeyed the law of Moses. But now you're going to put it in a tent all by itself, not in the tabernacle with all the sacrifices and all the things that God said go with this, this ark. And, and you think that's going to be okay? This is a fascinating moment in biblical history that we're looking at today and will solve the mystery of what true reverence actually is. Because he said to them, you're the heads of the, the father's households of the Levites, so consecrate yourselves, you and your relatives, so you could bring the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place I've prepared for it. Because you did not carry it at the first, the Lord our God made an outburst on us, for we did not seek him according to the ordinance. So David recognized, look, we're living under the old covenant, and there are rules about this thing. There are rules about this thing. We didn't seek God about how we were supposed to do it. And that's why Uzzah died and why all of us had a miserable, talk about raining on our parade. That's what happened according to the ordinance. The Lord was talking to me some this morning about this. So I was still meditating on it. And there really are two options for how to handle freedom. Our founding fathers recognized this from the scriptures, by the way, and understood. Either we've got to have laws to restrain our behavior and tell us what to do, or we've got to have something internal so we can be self-governed. It's the same with relating with God. Either we relate with God based on an internal knowing. I know that this is right, and I know that this is wrong, and I always seek to do the right, and I always seek not to do the wrong. Even if I fail and fall short, I knew what was right, I repent, and I turn back toward that thing. We're either going to live that way, or we need rules to keep us in line. It's why I resist, and some of you have been frustrated at me over the years, giving like, do this, this, and this, and boom, you'll have what your heart desires. Because that's not new covenant. New covenant is paying attention to our conscience, paying attention to the Spirit of God, the heart of God that we now have on the inside, and just living true to that heart. All sin for a believer is based on living untrue to the new nature we've been given. Man, that was such a... Amen. I'm going to write that down. Hang on. That's what all sin is in the new covenant. It means I know what I was supposed to do and I didn't do it. I ignored it. And, that, and so it was in this day with David. They had an ordinance. And gave, David's in the flux of this. Okay, I read the law of Moses. I read Leviticus. Ooh, boy. Whew. Read Leviticus, and this is how I was supposed to do it. So the priests and the Levites consecrated themselves to bring up the ark uh, according to the word of the Lord. So they brought it into that place where it belonged. All right, they have it. And um, our reverence for God, including our worship, is not what our preferences are. It's about what his are. That's a lesson from this day. This is a conversation we have among our worship leaders. I've had it all of my adult Christian life. What kind of songs does Jesus like? Well, the same kind I like, of course. <laughs> what worship should be is that song that moves my heart then I can worship it's got to have the right rhythm it's got to have the right beat it's got to have that it's got to have good bass I still believe we need bass 
but I can worship without a bass player. If you know how to play bass and you're hiding, we will find you. Anyway, step off that soapbox, Blair. Come back, Holy Spirit. What was I saying? There are certain preferences. Our question in worship, just like back to that friend about, our question about friendship, it's not, God, what kind of worship will please my heart? What kind of worship will move me to action? No, it's quite the opposite when it comes to worship. Worship is, God, what will move you right now? Our question, like if you're in the middle of a worship song, you're like, I don't like this song. When's the next song going to start? Don't look at me like that. You know you all do it. Some of you don't maybe, but you know, it's like, oh man, I hate this song. I got some of those, by the way. Okay. Like, please don't play that, that song one more time. Not again. You ever want to tweak James Houtman if you're still in touch with him and you ever talk, just, just sing Days of Elijah on a voice message to him, right? So some songs, right, they get like that. And we're like, oh, please, not that song. But as soon as we find ourselves doing that, saying, man, I like, this, I like gospel music better. I need some with a little bit of syncopation in it. I, you know, whatever. Just remember, we are now focusing worship here rather than taking what's in here and focusing it on the Lord. Our question should be, what do you desire right now? What are your preferences? David wanted to bring it to Jerusalem on a, an ox cart because it was easier. Put it on the cart. Ox do all the work. That thing's heavy, by the way. Some people said the ark would have weighed about a half ton based on the metals that are in it and the kind of wood and all of that. That's a heavy, a heavy thing to carry. Put it on a cart. That was their preference. Somebody died for that. Then they sought God. How do you prefer it? Oh, I always, be, I always prefer to be carried on the shoulders of my priests. I always like that intimate I'm with you. I want to feel you. I want you to sense. I want you to feel what it feels like to carry me because I've authorized you to do it and I love when you do it. True reverence is laying aside our culture, our personality, our opinions, our preconceived ideas about worship and abandoning ourselves to the ultimate question which is what pleases the Lord? What pleases you, Lord? What am I doing right now that makes you smile? David already knew in his heart what pleases God's heart. You read his Psalms, you know that man knew God. That man knew God before we started this adventure with him. He wrote Psalm 23 when he was a boy and he, he just knew what God was like. He had interaction with him. He was a man who carried God's own heart and so do we. We know what pleases the Lord. So, they got the priests, they consecrated it, they made sacrifices along the way, they have another big parade. This time nobody died. This time David's out in front of the ark dancing away. David was dancing before the Lord with all his might. I must confess, I did not dance like David danced when we were singing that song today. I was just doing my little, you know, little bebop back and forth like this. That's not how David was dancing. This is about what my body feels like doing after three days paddling on a river. But David danced with all his might. Have you ever danced with all of your might? Yes, some of you have. I've been to weddings. Oh, I'm coming for you now. I've been to weddings with some of you, and I see you get down. I mean, some of y'all know how to dance. I'm just saying, I'm avoiding eye contact so nobody feels singled out. I'm not singling anybody out. I'm like 50-ing you out or 100-ing you out. And some of you at home, too, they're watching later on. I know I've seen you. Todd has pictures of you like this. <laughs> So David in the house, they were bringing up the ark with shouting and with the trumpet. They were, they were dancing up a storm before the ark. Now, let's dig in on this a little bit, shall we? 
<laughs> it's like, no, can you skip this point and get to the next point and wrap this up? No, I want you to feel this one. And I'm speaking to you as somebody who never danced at all. I was, I was one of the, I was shy. I'm still introverted, but I was shy, even a recluse. Had like my three or four really good friends. That was good enough for me all through high school. You know what I dreaded the most? Prom. <laughs> and school dances. Oh, Lord, can I be sick on that night? I'd pray, and I didn't even know God. I hated dances. I hated getting out and making my, because I'm not good at it. You know, I, I just, I dance like, not like David danced. So I got these, you know, these things, and, and I'm just not dancing, and I don't want to dance. And, and then I came to Christ, and I got saved and moved into a Pentecostal Italian church with Focapuccio as my pastor. I'm going to tell you, there wasn't a body not moving at any time during worship. And I thanked God on the day that I got to play the drums. Because no, I, I mean, you know, if you play the other instruments, even guitar, you know, you can move a little bit like that. Our lead guitarist was this kid from Kenya. And it was like he had motion going on in every muscle of his body. He never not was moving. He never stopped moving. He would even talk to you, to you like, he came up to me one day, he goes, Brother Steve, you want revival? I said, yeah. He said, have one. Right? Kimanzi Mati. He was always in motion like that. And he would dance while playing the guitar. And he was just like, he was one of those guys. We always said he'd be like that, you know, the monkey that has the bass and the cymbal and all the instruments on top, the one-man band monkey. He was like that. And, and he was always moving. Me, I was so glad I got to play drums because all you got to do is sit and let your hands do the dancing. And then came the days that I wasn't behind the drum kit. And I got really convicted one week when my pastor preached the message on this passage of Scripture. If it pleases the Lord, if it's in God, it's in you. And if it pleases the Lord, then you ought to be doing it too. There is a time and occasion for every emotion to find its expression in worship. Every emotion. One of the things that ought to be happening to us and in us through Christ is that our emotional range gets stretched on both ends of the spectrum. David, we've seen in David's life so far, his Psalms in the wilderness, how David knew how to grieve, right? We've, we've looked at that together. David expressed, that's the deepest, you know, in terms of pain, hard emotions, grief is the, the, the mother of them all. He learned how to grieve with God. He, knew, he learned how to pour his heart out to God and hit a reset button so his grief wouldn't drive him away from the presence of God. And so he learned how to do that, and the songs that he was writing in the wilderness, not a one of them talks about dancing. There is a proverb that says, don't sing songs to a, to a, a downcast heart. And there is a season for grieving, right? My proposition is that if we learn how to grieve well, which means to cry over the things we've lost until we run out of tears, till we've had a good cry, and then come back to the Lord and say, but you're still good. That's what grieving's process is. I'm pouring out this pain, and now I'm reset, and I'm back to normal again. We don't want to live in the valley of Baca, the valley of tears, the valley of grief, but we do need to learn how to navigate our way through that and not avoid it. You can damage your heart by withholding grief. It, it does damage to the soul, but it's damaging to the soul to withhold the expression of grief, but it's also damaging to the soul to withhold the expression of joy. Joy is the spontaneous response to seeing something amazing. 
That's, that's basically the manifestation of joy is found in a whoo when you see something amazing. Or when you start laughing to the point where you just, like you're out of control, you know, snorting and, right? That's joy. I mean, the expression of joy. Joy doesn't come from an emotion though, right? Joy, biblical joy is rooted in the truth. So, but joy has to sometimes have an expression. Joy, if, if we go our whole life from a certain point in time and we never have anything happen, it makes us go, yeah, or woo, or something like that. I'm talking like uncontrollable, like how kids do it. I remember Aaron sitting in the back. I'll use him. All my kids have done this, but my kids are, we have six, so we have more sermon illustrations. I'm, not, I'm kidding. I promised all of them I won't embarrass you with it. This one was awesome, though. Aaron was, I don't remember, like two or three years old, and we were visiting with Mohan Babu. We were sitting around our dining room table in Steelton, and I don't know what happened, but just for no reason that any of us knew of, Aaron just out of the blue, and Aaron has always been a joyful, like his disposition is joyful. And out of the blue, Aaron just goes, woohoo, like this. Throws his hands in the air. And my wife had a, I think it was milk, in her hand, and it goes all over the place and that. But it was this spontaneous, no good reason, yeah! And, and when Jesus said, unless you're converted and become like little children, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven, that's part of what little children are like. They, they don't know how to control their joy. They don't understand what it means. Not, why would you not shout when you see something amazing? Right? To a kid, they're like, What's wrong with you people? Why are you not jumping up and down right now? This was amazing. Didn't you taste this ice cream? I mean, goodness. Do you have no taste buds? I mean, I'm, I'm putting words in a two-year-old's mouth. But, but something then, so if God feels it, the point is we're meant to feel it too. And if we feel it, then we're meant to express it. So something happens along the way, and I'm going to close out with this. Something happened to us along the way. Either if we don't know how to grieve well, or we don't know how to rejoice well, it's usually because something bottled it up. We got trained by our culture. We got trained maybe by our personality. We got trained by the peer pressure, which is a part of culture. We got trained by some experience of life that hurt us in some kind of way or made us fearful in some kind of way. Somewhere along the way, the point is, if we're not experiencing full grief or full joy, something bottled us up. So our emotional range went from what God experiences in his presence is fullness of joy, right? As much joy as you can handle, more joy than we can handle in his presence. And he's also a man of sorrows, intimately acquainted with grief. He's got the full range. So if our range is only this big, something happened, Something happened to us. And something almost happened to David on this day. Because he was dancing before the Lord with all of his might. And it happened, uh, this back to the story now, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, that Michal, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. Now, Michal was one of seven of David's wives. She was the one that David got for killing Goliath wasn't the one he was supposed to get, but that's another story. We're not going to revisit that. Can you imagine being one of seven wives, women, no American woman, said no American woman ever. Oh, I'd be okay with that, right? You're one of seven wives. It said earlier that he built houses for himself in Jerusalem. So it's like he had one wife for every day of the, month, of the week. 
soon he'd have enough concubines to have one for every day of the year, but that's, that's another story. This was David's uh, prevailing sin, but that's, we'll, we'll get into that later on. The point is that Michal had every good reason to be frustrated with him because she'd been given to another man while David was wandering in the wilderness. She only had one husband. Now David took her back, and she's got to share her husband with six other women. So she's probably offended with him, probably a little bit frustrated. She also grew up in the palace of a king. She also grew up around royalty. And Samuel, the scripture says, taught Saul and everybody the ways of royalty. So she knew proper decorum in the courtroom. I don't know what it was like. Probably not as advanced as European royalty and all the pomp and circumstance. But there were certain protocols and things you do and things you don't do in the palace. And she'd grown up under a father who didn't know God. Who could, remember Saul, the reason why he fell into so much trouble, because he just didn't care. It was his kingdom first, and hopefully God will be with me in what I'm doing. And she grew up in that house. So now she's got her husband out there dancing like a fool out in the middle of the street. Um, it says that David was dancing in an ephod. Now, I don't know where it came from, but... Some have said that David was out dancing in his underwear. Have you ever heard of youth pastors? Youth pastors say this all the time. It drives me bats. There's not a lot that does that. He was not dancing in his underwear. He was not dancing naked. He was wearing a linen ephod. An ephod is the garment of the priest. That, that is the, the ephod was a specific outfit that God said, I want my priests, when they're ministering to me, you're going to wear a linen ephod. And there were instructions on what it was supposed to look like. He was not dancing in his underwear. Okay? Now we got one more Bible story settled. Feel free to clarify it to the next pastor who says he was dancing in his underwear. He was not dancing in his underwear. Did I say that enough times? We'll all remember that, right? Many things I have and hopes for Hillside. One is that you know the scriptures well, and now you know that part. It wasn't underwear. It was the garment of a priest. However, for a king in that day, for a king to put on the garment of priest was like a demotion. They didn't understand. David would understand that king and priest belong together in one office. The only one other than Melchizedek to do it until Jesus. Another story for another day. He was dancing in this ephod, and she gets in his face all about it. Where am I, Megan? I forgot what verse I'm on. She rebukes him, and Michal came out. Now the king of Israel distinguished himself today. This is, uh, this is his wife. He uncovered himself today in the eyes of his servants' maids. This is what her voice sounds like in my head. As one of the foolish ones does, shamelessly uncovers himself. What are all the women going to say in the court? Oh, I'll tell you what the women are saying. David said to Michal, It was before the Lord who chose me above your father and above all his house to appoint me ruler over the people that I was dancing. And I will celebrate before the Lord. You ain't going to shut this down. She said, You got to behave more dignified. His response was, You ain't seen nothing yet, girl. You wait to see what I've got in store once we have the ark in the tent I prepared for it. Oh boy, that's going to be a Holy Ghost party. <laughs> Todd's right with me on this. Ain't no party like a Holy Ghost party because a Holy Ghost party don't stop. Who is that? Some dude. Some of you knew that song. Some of you are just looking at me like, did you just make that? No, I didn't make that up. This is going to be such a hoopla, McCall. You have no idea. But imagine if David would have taken heart 
to what his wife had just said to him. Why are you dancing before the Lord like that? I know you. You're dancing before the Lord and you got another wife for every day of the week. You're dancing before the Lord, making a fool out of yourself in front of everybody. He said, look, regardless of, of all this other thing, I'm dancing before God and you ain't going to stop me. Nothing will stop me. I know the God who preserved me through all these years in the wilderness. I know the God who has never left me, never forsaken me. I know the God who is my shepherd. And I'm celebrating because I'm now looking and seeing how his goodness and his mercies have been following me all the days of my life. And his presence is here right now. And he ain't raining on my parade, girl. Not a chance. That's a paraphrase. So I'll be more lightly esteemed or I'll become more undignified than this, if you like that translation, because the song made it the permanent translation forever. And I'll be humble in my own eyes, those maids you spoke of. I'll be distinguished with them because they get it. You don't get it, Mikal. They get it. Those maids that you look down on with disdain, they understand the simplicity of praise and they were dancing with me in the streets because God's here now. What could be better than that? Spirit of Mikal seeks to stifle the joyful, childlike expression of praise and love for God and replace it with a more adult-like, controlled behavior. Now, I know I've said this a few times and I hope I don't offend anybody with this, but I'm going to say it because it's true. It doesn't matter what culture we came out of, guys. It doesn't matter what personality we carry. It doesn't matter really in the end what our preferences are when it comes to worship. It's not that every time we open up our mouth to sing, we should be dancing. But it's also not like, I never dance, and I never shout, something's wrong. It's just like, I never grieve and cry until I have no more tears left, because my culture is more stoic than that. And I hold in my grief. And I hold, it's, it's the same process on both ends of the emotional spectrum, but if you can find it in the Psalms, then at some point, it's meant to be expressed out of our heart. And what comes out of our heart comes out of our mouth, comes out of our mouth ought to affect what we do with our bodies. So I'm exhorting you, take it to the Lord and ask, because uh, there needs to be some dancing in this house. That was eight amens. Just like there needs to sometimes be some weeping in this house. There needs to be everything. Look, I'll... You need to go, uh, remember I shared how you can either do it from the heart or you could do it by the law, right? Either we're going to be internally motivated and the internal motivation of our heart, I'm telling you, it's what David did. He danced when God was present, was when he was celebrating and rejoicing. Psalm 150, praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty expanse. Praise him in his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with the trumpet. Praise him with the harp. Praise him with the timbrel and with dancing. So there it is. It's commanded. Praise him with dancing. It's not the only way to praise him. It's not the only way to worship. Reverence for the Lord doesn't mean being still and quiet and, and staring at the screen. I'm, I'm, I just feel I got to do this. All right. Our kids are growing up in this house. We keep them in this gathering of worship so that they'll learn how to worship. They'll learn what the expression of worship looks like. We have our kids, this is our vision as a house. This is why there are kids in the sanctuary. This is why from time to time I thank you all for the patience as the little ones are being trained in what it means to be worshipful. So we, we don't want our kids just running around having a free for all, having sword fights with the flags and whatnot. 
but we don't want them to sit silently in a seat where children are seen and not heard. We want them to experience worship, but how do children learn? They learn by what they see, not by what we say. We have amazing teachers in the children's ministry, and they've learned about dancing, and they've learned about grieving, and all the things over the course of time. They'll hear about all of it. But if they come into a sanctuary full of adults, and they start dancing, and they turn around, they see a bunch of adults going, now the spirit of McCall is going to get on them. That's how it happens. You go jump up and down. I remember this thing happening to my son Benjamin. This is a carnal example, but it's the same thing. He was at the Boys and Girls Club with me when he was six years old. I brought him in just to check the place out. And he was, I was raising him a Yankee fan, as all good parents do. And he was, you know, and, and we went down to the youth center for a little bit because I was doing my rounds in the building to make sure nobody was killing anybody in the youth center. And I went in and the Yankee Red Sox game was on the big screen TV. So I don't remember what happened, but one of the Yankees got a great hit. Maybe it was like extra bases. And Ben went, yeah! In the middle of a room full of Red Sox fans. And the glares that he got and the shouts that he got converted him instantly to a Red Sox fan. He'll tell you the story. That's when it happened. I saw it happen right before my eyes and I grieved. I grieved. Point is, he expressed something from the heart, read the room, and said, oh, I'm not going to do that ever again. Our children will do the same if when they look around the room and we're worshiping the Lord and there's a song talking about I'll dance like David dance or there's a song talking about how majestic the Lord is. There's a song talking about I will lift my hands in worship and, and our kids turn around and they see a bunch of this. That's what they're going to become. We will raise up a generation of children who worship with this much of an emotional range in their worship instead of this, which by the way is what they're naturally born with. Can we stand to our feet? I want to minister something to you and ask the Lord to continue to minister to your heart with this. Can you recall a time in your life that you were ashamed or somebody shamed you because you expressed jubilation? That's a word we use to describe the expression of joy. Let's close your eyes for a minute. Let's take a moment with Jesus before we go and have fun together at a church picnic. I believe the Lord wants to uncap us and heal us from that spirit of McCall. And this is most of the way that it happens. The time you express joy or excitement about something and you were told, stop that. Be quiet. Lord, take us into whatever we need to know to be healed from it right now. For some of you, I know instantly you got a picture and you remember when it happened. For some, maybe it never happened to you and so you're one of the crazy ones dancing up around the front of the church when the song's just right for it. Maybe it happened so many times you just got a, a flood of memories coming in. I want to tell you right now that Jesus is here to hit the reset button for you because he loves you and he loves that playful expression of worship just like he loves it when you sit on his lap and have a good cry. So may the Lord visit you right now in your place where that spirit came upon you and stifled the pure childlike expression of joy in your heart. In his presence is fullness of joy. At his right hand is everything your heart's ever desired. Be free right now from the glares, the stares, the 
odd looks that you received, even the painful words that were spoken to you to make you ashamed of expressing joy from the heart. And I just want to leave you with a closing thought. All of us ought to have moments in life, as I said, that make us shout. All of us in Christ ought to also have moments that make us want to shout about the Lord. Excited about His presence. It's not every minute of every day, but it ought to happen. So when was the last time it happened for you? And what will you do to position your heart so that as we sang, when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon your heart, you can express it in fullness. Be blessed by the Lord as you go and you're coming, you're going this week. May you always have a sense of his presence with you. No matter what circumstances have come, no matter what life has brought your way, may you always have a sense this week of his abiding presence with you. Amen.